Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking nutrition science with Dr. Joey Munoz. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Right Nutrition Podcast, episode number 103. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Joey Munoz. Joey holds a PhD in nutritional sciences. He's also a part of Team BioLane, and he also has excellent content on social media. So if you don't follow him already, please go and do so. Today, we're going to talk to Joey about how he got into nutrition and fitness, what led him to a PhD in nutrition, as well as some of the research that he's done. We're also going to talk about some controversy around certain topics pertaining to nutrition and some things that you might be confused about when it comes to nutrition. In addition to that, we're also going to get Joey's take on some of the most important things to consider when setting up your nutrition and exercise program and some of the top false nutrition claims that Joey sees that really get under his skin. So without further ado, Joey, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Joey, I know that you are, I guess, is it recently a part of Team BioLane? Yeah, I've actually been part of Team BioLane for a little over a year now. Um, and before that, I've been working with Lane for several years, um, doing some some writing like around nutrition and, and training related topics. Um, I also am a scientific advisor for Outwork Nutrition, which is our supplement company and do a lot of um, research review there for development of new products and stuff like that. But uh, I'd say I've been involved with uh, Lane and BioLane and stuff like that uh, on and off since 2016, and then exclusively about a year and like two months now. How's it working with Lane? It's awesome, man. He's a he's a cool guy. I know. Uh, I feel like people have a certain persona, uh, or think he has a certain persona based off social media, but he's uh, way nicer and and more collected in person, which is really funny. You know, I'll say that I love Lane from a science perspective. And then I'm like, he like shits on everybody all over social media. So I could see where people get that kind of uh, a perception of him. I will say anytime I'm posting something on Instagram, I always have like Lane in the back of my mind where I'm like, I don't want to say anything wrong. I might get attacked by Lane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you also I, I think part of it is um, is for social media, right? Like because yeah, a certain type of a certain type of energy. Yeah. gets a little bit more attention. Uh, he's really chill in person, which is awesome. I kind of like that he's, I mean, I like both sides. I mean, I've listened to him on other podcasts and I feel like he's so chill and calm, obviously yeah, brilliant. Exactly. And then you see him on social media and it's a different you know, side of him. I kind of like that he, he ex- yeah. you can experience yeah. both. It's fun. Yeah, certainly. So Joey, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into nutrition and fitness. Okay, yeah. So- I've actually been interested in nutrition and fitness since I was pretty young because both of my parents were um, into working out and eating healthy and all that stuff. Not that they had much of a background in nutrition itself, but they understood the importance of like eating whole and processed foods mainly, right? So I grew up with a pretty healthy diet. Uh, my mom really always tried emphasizing eating healthy. So it was something I was exposed to at a young age. And then when I was a young teenager, I was actually pretty overweight. And it goes to show that 
eating clean doesn't mean you're going to be lean or anything like that. Right. So, um, I was somewhat overweight as a teenager and then I started exercising, actually started doing a lot of team sports, basketball, competitive swimming, and just really started to, um, love exercise. Really. I've always been uh, very physically active. So I guess the physical activity component was something I've always done, but then really when I started getting into like, um, probably sophomore, junior year of high school, I started taking some like weight training classes, started really enjoying it there. And then I went into college, um, really thought about what kind of majors I would want to want to be part of. And one of the things I wanted to do was potentially music because I was also very much into music in high school. Um, so I was like between music, math, or like some sort of biology, like exercise science or nutrition. Uh, the music thing was a hard conversation with my mom and she's like, you're going to be broke. So <laughs> I didn't go the music route. And then the whole math thing, I was like, well, I really like math, but what can I do with a, with a degree in math? You know, it didn't really seem like I could do much there. And then I started taking, you know, general nutrition courses, really enjoyed it. And the rest is kind of history from there uh, towards the end of undergrad. Um, similar with the math degree, you can't really do much with just an undergraduate degree in nutrition. So I decided to go into graduate school because I enjoyed school and I didn't really know exactly what I wanted my career to be. And then when I started my master's, I didn't have any sort of uh, financial help and I was paying out of pocket for, for my master's. I was taking out student loans and I was realizing how expensive school was because thankfully I didn't have to pay for my undergraduate. And I met a professor who, who was, he was actually my professor for one of the graduate um, vitamin and minerals courses. And um, he, he was like, I had a conversation with him talking about how expensive school was. And he was like, well, if you want, I'm more than happy to take you on as a PhD student and we can pay your tuition and we can pay you a stipend on top of that. And that was my, that was, that was it. Like for me, I was like, all right, I can get paid to go to school. Like, let's do it. You know, I can get a better degree and get paid. Let's go for it. At that time, I really didn't even know what, what a PhD entailed. I just knew it was a higher degree and um, I'd be in school a little bit longer, but then I started really learning about um, the intricacies of research and how to um, read and interpret research and everything that went into a PhD. And then I really, well, I didn't have an option, right? That's what I did for four years. And at one point I thought I really wanted to, to be a professor at a university, but there's, there's many things about academia that turned me off. And I've always had kind of like an entrepreneurial spirit too. And so I actually reached out to Lane one day via an email because um, I was listening to one of Lane's podcasts and he's always talking about how, if you want something, go for it, ask for it, whatever. So I sent him an email saying, hey man, um, your career is exactly what I want my career to be. You have a PhD, I'm getting my PhD. How do I get to where you're at? Um, and he gave me a, a small position to start doing some work with him, writing, et cetera. That turned into a coaching position. And uh, that turned into what I'm doing now, which is pretty much everything that I explained at the beginning, right? So I coach, I'm also a scientific advisor for a supplement company. Um, I've had great opportunities to collaborate on, on courses for um, NASM, for example. And I'm actually pretty fresh in my career still. I just finished school a year and a half ago. So things are still kind of opening up for me. Uh, kind of new to the whole social media thing. And I'm really enjoying now focusing my career more on educating the general public on nutrition and exercise science related topics than anything else. And it sounds like you're in your happy place doing all that. Yeah, man. I can't complain, to be honest. I'm super happy and fortunate to be where I'm at. Good stuff, man. You know, it's interesting. You bring up the, you can't really do anything with a uh, bachelor's in nutrition. Yeah. <laughs> I realized that it took me eight years after I got my bachelor's in nutrition. To yeah. that. <laughs> and then now I'm doing my master's in nutrition. 
Yeah. Uh, and then Nicole and I have talked about, we've kind of teetered on the, will I get a PhD? Will I not? We've had Bill Campbell on the podcast and he's like, are you going to get a PhD? And I'm like, let me just cross that bridge when I get to it. But yeah, it sounds very intensive, but it is something that it's, it's kind of one of those things that is, you know, it would be on my bucket list. It's like a, uh, just a life goal. Like I don't want to sell myself short kind of thing. Yeah. I think if you, if you enjoy school and enjoy science, it's not nearly as difficult as people make it seem it is. Right. I think in retrospect, everybody likes to say, oh, my man, it was so difficult. But like I, I have the philosophy that if you want to excel at anything, I, I think anything's equally difficult. Right. Because anything right. requires equal effort. Um, there are things that are objectively easier than others. But doing a Ph.D., I think, really just requires commitment. Right. If you if you have the capacity to get through a master's degree, I think you have the mental capacity to get to a three through a Ph.D. You just need to be committed to the four years and doing a research project. And, and it really does come down to your experience with your mentor, too. So if I could give you any small piece of advice, which is kind of funny because I'm a young guy, um, is look for a mentor that you really mesh with well. I think that is incredibly important because you'll run into issues for, for sure during your projects and you'll need somebody who you can communicate to. Uh, with and will understand you and is willing to hear you out and sees you as a friend and not just somebody who works in their lab, right? So I was extremely fortunate to have an awesome PhD mentor. I've seen colleagues of mine that had horrible experiences and their PhDs perhaps took them five, six years for no logical reason besides them just having a poor relationship with their mentor. So I think that mentor-student relationship is incredibly important. And if you, I would actually find somebody who you get along with as something that's more important than even like the area of research that you want to do, because my area of research is, or what I did for my PhD is not even like close to what I do now in terms of talking about body composition and stuff like that. And I know that's something we'll talk about a little bit later, but I, I think that's probably the most important thing you should look for if you're actually interested in pursuing a PhD and it'll make your life way easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, duly noted, obviously. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the work that you did when you were doing your PhD, what kind of research did you get into? Yeah, so I was involved in a number of projects and unfortunately a couple of them didn't come to fruition. But when I first started my PhD, I was working on a study looking at the anti-atherosclerotic properties of black beans. So mainly look, looking at the benefits of fiber consumption, but there's other um, nutrients in there that we classify as phytonutrients that can potentially improve cardiovascular health. So we were feeding hamsters different doses of black beans and seeing whether or not it would prevent atherosclerosis, right? So uh, fatty plaque buildup in the arteries. That was one project I worked on. Um, I then worked on another project looking at the effects of a plant extract. So there's this plant called bitter melon. The scientific name is Momordica. And we were looking at its effects on regulating glycemic control in pre-diabetic adults. So this um, plant has actually been used in like Eastern ancient medicines, particularly in China for helping uh, not treat, but moderate or modulate um, uh, diabetes, right? So we were doing this project to see if it had um, a beneficial effect in pre-diabetics. Due to some complications, we weren't able to finish the project. Unfortunately, I worked on that project for about a year and a half. And then my dissertation was looking at the effects of um, dried plums or prunes on bone health in older men. So I know that might seem a little like out of nowhere, but 
Um, our, our lab really focused on the effects of particular foods to help uh, prevent the, the progression of particular diseases. And we really focused on diabetes and bone health. So my mentor, and this was actually something I didn't know before I started working with him, um, really spent his entire career studying the relationship between estrogen and bone health. And estrogen plays an incredibly important role in bone health. And that's one of the reasons why women after menopause lose significant amounts of bone density. It's because you have significantly less um, estrogen. And dried plums have a pretty high concentration of a, of a classification of molecules known as phytoestrogens. So plant compounds that mimic the activity of estrogen. And some listeners might be thinking, oh, estrogen, that's bad if you're a man. And that's not true at all, right? It's all about balance. Like women have higher estrogen than men, but estrogen still plays an important role in male physiology as well. And so prior to me starting my PhD, my, my postdoc, not my postdoc mentor, my PhD mentor did a series of studies um, showing that dried plums can actually slow down the progression of osteoporosis in postmenopausal women. And those phytoestrogens are not the only compounds there. There is boron and a, and a whole host of, of nutrients that are bone protective um, in prunes. So we were doing a follow-up study to see if it had similar effects in older men. Um, so that was, you know, a very large project that we were doing. And my particular angle for my PhD was looking at some more mechanistic stuff. I wanted to know like, hey, if it does help, why does it potentially help, right? And we had looked at a, at a number of things that are markers of, of bone um, anabolism, essentially. So there's a, a number of blood biomarkers that you can look at that indicate positive bone health, essentially. And there's a number of biomarkers that indicate bone resorption, which is bone breakdown, which is negative, right? If we're going to talk about general terms. And so I was doing some reading and there's uh, actually a pretty robust relationship between the immune system and bone health. In particular, there's a type of cell, we call them micro macrophages, and there's different types of macrophages. And one particular type of macrophage is associated with um, bone growth. So I wanted to see if by some um, if there was some, some mechanism linking uh, positive bone outcomes with dried plum consumption, if that was in part due to um, an overactivity or overexpression of particular molecules from these macrophages. So to sum that up, <laughs> I just looked at whether or not dried plums um, influence these types of cells that then influence bone health. So now, I'm, now you kind of left me wondering what was the conclusion with the... Uh... <laughs> Uh, uh, macrophages based ba yeah based on our findings it was not due to that particular classification of macrophages so we did find some positive findings in terms of again slowing down the progression when you age you're going to lose bone density like there's no way around it right so the best thing we wanted to see is like can we slow the 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 loss of bone down um and we we were able to find that but the, the particular mechanism um, is somewhat unknown. I mean, we know, we know that the cells that grow bone, their activity increases, but we don't necessarily know exactly why. That's a cool topic. And uh, it kind of goes into the functional food side of nutrition. And yeah. um, mm -hmm. I feel like that's a, an emerging field. Like when I was- That's under all we looked at in our lab. <laughs> when, when I was an undergrad, we didn't, there weren't any courses in functional foods. And now at the graduate level, eight years later, I'm finding courses that are brand new to the school that I'm at in functional foods, which is, I just, I don't know if it's something that, you know, we always talk about like Eastern medicine. Yeah. And there is a lot of that coming from Eastern, from, from the East, but I feel like we're kind of behind on that in yeah. Western medicine. Yeah. At least like the, the hardcore research isn't there for sure. 
but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. And mm-hmm. I, I think, unfortunately, we tend to dismiss that, like, yes. it doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's important to, like, say things non-conclusively if there isn't conclusive evidence. But if a particular population has been using something for centuries and they see some positive outcomes, like, it's likely there's some benefit, right? Um, it's just hard to say, like, to what degree, perhaps, but for example, like with the bitter melon stuff, there's no doubt that it was helping um, blood glucose. The project didn't finish, but I was working on the project and looking at, at those data and there were, definitely seemed to be a trend towards a benefit. Um, so yeah, I agree with you completely on that, Jerome. You know, then it's interesting because then we have to obviously look at how we interpret that information and we have to be careful as well because we, we always see this, like research comes out, a study will come out on something supplement industry will go wild. Uh, I've seen this recently in uh, mushrooms have become very like yeah. mushroom extracts, lion's yeah. mane, shiitake, turkey tail, all these things. Right. And then you look at the research and you're like, ah, eh, the research is kind of sparse. There's some research here and there, depending on which particular mushroom you're looking at. But then people go to rather than lifestyle factors, they're like, okay, well, I can just take this uh, bitter melon yeah. and, you know, I'm good to go. Yeah, the claims are exacerbated. That's the big yeah. issue. It's like, it's, it's fine to say like, this may help blank, right? But then people take that to an extreme for marketing purposes, for sure. And like you mentioned, I think it's incredibly important to say like, none of these things are going to help more than lifestyle factors, right? Like that's first and foremost, as, as like nice as it would be for a particular food or supplement to like really help tremendously, it, it doesn't. Well, that's the, I think that's the big thing that we try and get across each week that we release podcasts is that people understand that all the stuff that you read, all the claims that you see, even in the grocery store on just general food, right? Yeah. You, you really have to pay attention to what your lifestyle factors are first. And then all that stuff can kind of layer in. Yeah. And help That's like when you degree. see, um, when you see a food that would never have um, wheat with any sort of recipe right. that says gluten-free. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. This rice is gluten-free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you from your perspective, why do you think that people are confused around nutrition and nutritional science? Because even the experts are confused. <laughs> Good essence, answer. Right? That, that's, that's, that's one aspect of it. I mean, obviously I would say the most obvious thing to point out is how much bad information there are Uh, or there is on social media, right? Because Mm. people can make money off this stuff. And unfortunately, if they make a ridiculous claim, it just attracts more attention, right? So so conflict in general does attract more attention. So if somebody says some sort of information that is somewhat novel, more people listen to it. So I think that's one factor. Uh, Another factor is I think people have a really hard time understanding nuance or context. I think that's probably the biggest one because everything everything in nutrition is context specific, mm-hmm. right? Like even saying whether a food is good or bad, which really doesn't exist is, is context specific, right? For example, like I've made posts before talking about intermittent fasting or whatever it may be. And you say something like, or, or I may say something like, Hey, intermittent fasting is a method for whatever outcome, but it's not superior to blank. And people will comment, well, I did intermittent fasting and this happened. It's like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, right? Like, <laughs> but but they they lack the nuance of understanding like that the context of the outcome matters, right? So people say things like, 
oh, sugar is bad, right? That's a, that's a common one. Well, if somebody is starving to death and hasn't eaten, that sugar is going to help them live a little bit longer, right? So, it, and that's an extreme case, of course, but it, it just highlights the importance of context. So I think that is incredibly important. And then another aspect is just that physiology is really complex, right? Um, it's hard. It's really hard to have a whole body of research on a particular topic agree, right? There's always going to be contradicting data. And the issue is that the general public doesn't have the knowledge or the resources to really understand what the research shows, right? So I'll talk about one particular topic that I was doing a, a good bit of reading on that highlights this perfectly. Um, so omega-3s, right? Everybody knows, hey, omega-3s are good for your health in general, right? And then I was like, all right, I'm going to look at some data and see like what kind of uh, doses are beneficial for cardiovascular health. And then you start looking at all of these studies that look at outcomes um, associated with cardiovascular health that implement an omega-3 um, supplement. And the results are literally all over the place, like where some studies show benefits, some don't. And these are not small studies. These are large scale studies with uh, uh, not dozens. That would still be a small study with thousands of people, right? It's like, what's going on here? Well, when you start to take a little bit uh, of, a, of a deeper dive, you start noticing differences in the methodology, right? And the methods are incredibly important and, and highly influence the outcomes of the study. So for example, studies with low doses of omega-3s were only showing benefits in like Italian and Japanese populations and not American populations. So one hypothesis is that to have a protective effect, you need a certain concentration of omega-3s in the blood. And the fact that these populations already consume more omega-3 in their diet because they consume more fish as part of their normal diet, they have a higher baseline omega-3 status. So when they have a, a lower dose, they perhaps reach that threshold effect, right? Whereas American um, or, or studies in American populations have shown benefits at higher doses, perhaps three, four grams, where some of these... Um, other populations have shown benefits at like one or two grams. So that's one discrepancy. But you don't, you can't get that discrepancy unless you know how to interpret the methods, right? Another discrepancy was like er, uh, studies published earlier on showed more benefits than studies published later on, even at similar doses. It's like, well, what's going on there? Well, then you look at the inclusion criteria and the, the amount of medication being used in those later studies is significantly more than the earlier studies, right? So what we were talking about before, like food helps, but it's not a drug. So if people who already have cardiovascular complications are on a bunch of medications like statins, for example, which are very potent, well, taking some additional omega-3 may not have that much of a benefit, right? So you start to look at these little things and these little patterns. And it's like, all right, let, let's uh, take a step back. Like we know omega-3 mechanistically helps, cardio, uh, helps cardiovascular function. And there are these potential confounding factors that can explain why some studies don't show a benefit. And you can apply that kind of logic to really any field of research. For example, talking about overall dietary patterns and lifestyle that we were just mentioning. When it comes to red meat consumption, that's another huge one, right? Red meat consumption overall is associated with an increased risk of cancer. But then you start taking a slightly closer look at the data and different patterns start to appear. Like it seems to be more with processed meats that are higher in saturated fat, but people are like, oh no, meat in general. And it doesn't seem to be that way, right? And then when we look at dietary patterns, when we look at individuals who consume a lot of meat, but also consume a lot of fruits and vegetables, they have a relatively low risk of, of cancers. So you really have to, you can't look at one study and, and make a conclusion, which is often what happens, right? And I've been guilty of this too. I've made posts before on like one particular study and then somebody will comment, 
who's who, who's re, uh, relatively knowledgeable in that field and says, oh no, like take a, take a look at this study. But I feel like I'm open-minded enough to admit when I've been wrong about something and perhaps uh, change my mind on it, right? So another contributing factor to, to all of these issues is that people are very dogmatic and don't want to change their point of views. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think all of those factors really contribute to the confusion. You know, interesting, uh, something that I feel like has been circulating a lot since you bring up context and you brought up cardiovascular disease and you brought up saturated fat. Some of the things that I've been seeing a lot of have been, we're consuming too much, quote unquote, refined seed oil, and we are, we should be eating more saturated fat. And I look at it from my lens and I'm like, oh, the research that I've looked at really, I mean, the context I think is people are eating way too much processed food and they're getting a lot of omega-6 fatty acids and seed oils. But when I look at the research on saturated fat, I'm like, I don't know if eating saturated fat is a good idea. It's not. <laughs> so, but you get this message where it's like refined seed oils are bad for you. And then you almost can't even talk people off the ledge with that conversation. And I'm like, I mean, the research is there. Yeah, man, dude, this is something we could talk about forever <laughs> because it includes so many different topics. Mm. First off, I really don't like when people try to blame one particular food again, because the context of the entire diet is what really matters. And then the, the context of the entire diet really matters in terms of the context of the entire lifestyle. lifestyle. Right? Yeah. Because if you have a quote unquote healthy diet, but you overeat, you're inactive, you get poor sleep, you're super stressed out, you're overweight, obese, like doesn't matter if you eat a healthy diet, right? So all of these things go hand in hand. But talking about saturated fat and seed oils in particular, this is actually an area that I've um, changed my thought process on a bit. Because me personally, I lay out the information, but some of my behaviors I know are not the best either, right? But part of it is because I'm human and like enjoying my life is another thing that's important to me, right? So I do eat a lot of red meat, but I also think I perhaps counteract some of the negative effects with some of the other behaviors that I have. Like I do eat plenty of plant-based foods. I do eat a lot of vegetables. I try to add veggies to all my meals. I'm really active. So it's hard to say like, how much does that balance itself out, right? But um, here, here's the overall, I guess, like summary of the saturated fat um, topic. Saturated fat does increase LDL cholesterol. And there's sufficient evidence now to suggest that LDL cholesterol is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So that means that slightly higher LDL slightly increases your risk of cardiovascular disease. And there's plenty of data that if you eat more saturated fat, your LDL goes up. Right now, can you counteract those effects by perhaps eating more plant foods? Certainly. However, and here's where here's where I also hate when we confuse like talking about research and talking about practical outcomes, right? Because somebody who has like a very typical Western diet, right? A lot of fast food, a lot of processed food, etc. To tell that person like, hey, don't eat red meat and veggies because it's high in saturated fat is probably not the best advice, right? Like even though eating a bunch of red meat is not the best for cardiovascular health, that person would likely improve their health by changing their eating behaviors in that fashion, right? So that's why I always say too, like when I give general advice on social media, it's, it's very general, right? Like rather than saying eat these foods, I say eat mainly whole and processed foods because I think that matters more. And there's also data to suggest that those foods are more satiating. So you eat less. I think the real big issue with processed food is not that it's not that processing processing itself is inherently dangerous. It's not. It's the fact that some processed foods are really easy to overconsume. I actually made a post about this kind of uh, I think last week it was 
It's the fact that food companies want to sell their food. So they have food scientists who make it as irresistible as possible, right? Like there's a reason you open a bag of Doritos and it's hard to stop. (laughs) (laughs) And you open a bag of whatever other whole and processed carbohydrate. It's a lot harder to eat. It's just tastier, right? And so it's, it's harder to like regulate how much we eat when we eat those foods. It's not that those foods are inherently dangerous for us. Now, when it comes to seed oils, seed oils are also not inherently dangerous. In fact, there can be some benefits there as well. And, and when it comes to omega-6, omega-3, all that stuff, yes, there's a lot of mechanistic data showing that omega-6s have inflammatory outcomes and oxidized LDL and all, all of these other markers. However, again, the, the context of the entire diet matters, right? Because there's, there's studies showing that when you use or implement particular seed oils, cardiovascular outcomes improve, right? And part of that is not the fact that the seed oil itself is doing that. It's the fact that the person is perhaps substituting some of the other fat sources with the seed oils, right? So canola oil is, is a perfect one. Like people are like, oh my God, canola oil, how can you eat that? It's like, well, hey, if you have elevated LDL and you cook a lot with butter, if you simply substitute the butter for canola oil, your LDL will, will be lower. So it's, again, it's, it's the seed oil in the context of the entire diet, because if the person's already overeating and they're like, I have high LDL, now they're just going to add some canola oil rather than removing the other one then health outcomes might be worse because their total caloric intake is increasing. But again, that's why this stuff is complex. It's hard. It's hard for the, for the general public to really understand all this stuff. You know, it's interesting because people get into this whole kind of uh, dogmatic kind of thing. And, you know, perfect example, I used to kind of be like, yeah, seed oils aren't great for you. And then that was at the undergraduate level. Then I got to graduate school and we kind of have an assignment on it. So we're looking at it and I'm, and I'm looking and, it's clear as day. If you replace saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats of any kind, right? Omega-6, omega-3, doesn't matter. You're going to have a better outcome. Yeah. But when you try to, you know, I I try to have this conversation with somebody on Instagram uh, through DM because he uh, is in the fitness industry and kept like posting and posting and posting about these, uh, you know, refined seed oils and saturated fat. And I was like, hey man, American Heart Association had this great articles, huge meta-analysis. I think it was like 2020 or 2021. And, yeah. you know, you should probably take a look at that. You should read it. It was a position stance. It, it was a lot of research that went into that. And then the argument just becomes, oh, well, you're still listening to uh, the big institutions. And yeah, how can you trust the government? Right? <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, I'm like, listen, you literally just reposted something from somebody on Instagram. So you'll listen to them, but you won't listen to the science. You won't listen to the doctors. Yeah, exactly. And hey, I mean, this is extremely highly unlikely, right? But going back to what we were saying before in terms of being open-minded, if new data comes out showing that perhaps seed oils aren't necessarily beneficial and there's concrete evidence, then it would be important for us to be willing to change our mind too, right? Although like it would be hard to counteract the amount of evidence that currently supports that they're not unhealthy, right? So maybe that's, maybe that's a bad topic, but there are definitely some areas of research that are emerging right? In terms of nutrition that don't have that much information. I don't think it's also smart not to share that information because there's not a boatload of evidence. I think we can still share that information with caution, right? And again, if future information is is contradicting in any way, it is important to be open-minded and change the way we think. And I think that's that's really one big thing that is lacking Um, because a lot of the, the, the big names that Uh, people follow for nutrition advice, they've almost like built an identity around their particular belief, right? Like they are their belief, like carnivore MD, it's in his damn name, 
right? So <laughs> it's like, imagine a carnivore and he's like, Hey guys, like, nah, you can eat some carbs. It's like, you know, he, he would probably lose a big portion of his following or credibility, unfortunately. And that's why I try, I try to build my credibility on evidence, no matter what the evidence shows, rather than taking a, a hard stance on one side or the other. It's almost like nutrition is like politics. It's kind of yes. weird. <laughs> yeah. It is. But the answer always lies somewhere in the middle. The middle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Both, both sides. It's definitely, and Nicole and I, Nicole, we've had that conversation yeah. about how I just feel like it's like left and right and everybody's screaming at each other. Yeah. I'm always like, can't we just figure out a way to have conversations versus, you know, uh, but I don't know. I'm a much calmer, quieter person <laughs> about it. So, yeah, different. I things. think most people are. And then the people that aren't are the ones that um, are like more controversial. So more people listen or, or tune in. Right. They just have a, a larger yeah. voice. But I'd say most people kind of agree with what we're saying here for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I saw um, speaking of carnivore MD, I don't know if you follow. Um, Dan Feldman, powerlifting dietitian. Yes, 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 yes. So he posted carnivore MD uh, referring to lectins. And I just thought it was hilarious because uh, Dan was talking about, we actually have Dan planned for uh, recording next week. And um, he was talking about lectins and the study. Dan was like, this study was done on roundworms. (laughs) And I was like, man, I get a kick out of this. Yeah. And it just, it it also goes to like the simplicity of people's degree of thinking, right? Like, oh, a particular plant food has a particular molecule. It must be bad. But then they don't understand like the concept of hormesis, for example, right? Like this is one example I love to tell people, like there is nothing more inflammatory, more damaging than a hard session of resistance training. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of the best things you can do. Again, it just like adds to the complexity of physiology, like acute versus chronic inflammation are t- two different things, right? Yes. And something that elicits an acute inflammatory response isn't inherently bad, right? And actually may be beneficial because our body adapts to that. Yeah, that's literally what our immune system is meant to be. It's supposed to do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So kind of uh, changing gears here a little bit, I want to talk about what you think are some of the most important things to consider when setting up a nutrition and or exercise plan. Well, I think they're both obviously incredibly important when it comes, I guess we'll take, we'll take one at a time overall for both of them. The most important thing is do something you enjoy simply for the fact that one, you should enjoy your life. It shouldn't be torturous. And two, it increases adherence to that particular protocol, right? I think Stan Efferding says this best. Um, You guys might know Stan or not, but he always says um, compliance is a science. doesn't matter how good your diet is on paper. If you can't be compliant, it it doesn't matter. Right. And that, that goes for exercise too. So again, since we've been talking about all the complexities that, that, uh, are involved in nutrition and physiology and all these things. Thankfully, due to those complexities, you can eat a number of different ways and be healthy, right? Like there are people who are vegans and are healthy. There are people who are carnivores and seem to be healthy. I don't know their blood work, but <laughs> seem to be healthy, right? Uh, there's many different ways of eating to be healthy. And I think there are some general rules to follow. I think you want to eat mainly whole and processed foods to the best of your ability. Now, again, eating isn't just for health, right? Like eating is a social thing too. and Eating is something we enjoy. Um, so it'd be silly to say 100% whole and processed foods. I think an 80-20 balance is good, but it's, I, know that's, I know that's a number that's thrown around a lot and it's hard to quantify, but just eat the majority of your food from whole and processed foods. And again, as long as you're eating some fruits, some vegetables, doesn't matter which ones, like just eat some, 
eat a good amount of protein. Um, and I always emphasize protein because I know my audience is more focused on like body composition related goals. And this is a whole other topic, but I really do think if people want to improve their health, one thing they should really focus on is improving their body composition. So those whole and processed foods are conducive towards better body composition. Protein is conducive towards better body composition in terms of increasing muscle mass, right? Most people don't eat enough protein. Um, and there's a lot of myths around protein, whether it's dangerous, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Most of those myths, the majority of those myths are completely untrue. I think most people probably under eat protein. Other, other important habits, I think there's just so many, right? I think um, having regular meal times is incredibly important because it helps regulate hunger and appetite. Doesn't really matter what those meal times are. Now we can get into the nitty gritty in terms of optimizing meal timing. I do think there's a benefit for eating breakfast early in the day, right? I do think there's a benefit for eating, for limiting food um, later at night. But hey, if somebody works a night shift, I'm not going to tell them don't eat at night before work. So it really depends on the particular person. But I think regular meal patterns is, is more important than when exactly you eat. And again, the regularity just makes it easier to plan ahead, which is incredibly important. And it helps regulate hunger and satiety, right? Um, maybe you guys eat breakfast at the same time every day. You, you'll realize you get hungry at the same time every day, right? And if you get hungry at the same time every day, you can plan for that. So you can perhaps be a little bit more adherent with your diet. I think those are really the main big picture things when it comes to nutrition, right? Pick something you enjoy, eat mainly whole and processed foods, eat sufficient protein, have regular meal times. Um, and then the overarching thing would be don't overeat in terms of total calories, but then that really goes into like educating a person on energy balance, what are calories, how many calories to eat. And uh, although I do think, and I, with, with my clients, I, I try to teach them about tracking calories because I do think it's a skill that teaches you like the energy value of different foods. It's not something you have to do forever. It's not something I do, but I think it's a really useful tool to then learn how to pull away from that and eat without overeating without having to track, right? But I think, I, I really do think that knowing how much to eat is a skill on its own that really takes a long term to, to, to develop. Because, I mean, I've had some experience with being overweight when I was younger. And then I remember transitioning into trying to improve my health. And, and that was largely influenced by my mom wanting me to improve my health. But I just remember like trying to starve myself sometimes. I don't think I ever had like an eating disorder or anything like that. But I was just like, Oh, no, I can't eat this because I'm trying to lose weight or, or whatever. Right. And there was like a lot of stress and anxiety around it. And like, I didn't know how much was too much food, how much was too little food. Uh, some foods are good or bad. Like all of those things tie into each other. And it's really, I think it's really hard to, to teach a person how to change those things. I think the most beneficial thing is to expose yourself to good information for a prolonged period of time. That's one thing I tell my clients, right? Like, Hey, this takes time. Like I can tell you this stuff once I'm going to tell it to you 20 times. And then maybe by the 25th time you'll get it. Right. And it just takes time. So those are really some of the, the big picture things around nutrition. Two things that you mentioned. One, you mentioned uh, that people underconsume protein, Yeah. Uh, which I know this, but there's, you know, going back to the research thing, right? There would be research to uh, suggest, uh, you know, survey studies, for example, that would say Americans overeat uh, protein. And in my eyes, I look at those studies and I'm like, have you ever worked with somebody? I mean, so people generally tend to grossly underestimate calories yeah, and grossly overestimate how much uh, protein they're taking in. Yeah. So, you know, that's interesting because to me, I'm like, well, from a public health standpoint, how do we tackle that? If the information that we're getting in these studies isn't even entirely accurate because people are grossly un underestimating. 
right? And then the other thing is in terms of protein, I guess let's kind of define, I want to kind of have the conversation around, um, you know, we have 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. Yeah. Uh, and then a lot of practitioners, including myself, would probably say, hey, like, you know what, that is to prevent deficiency. But if you want to optimize your health, your uh, lean body mass, your uh, control, your weight, your hunger, your satiety, all these different factors, then you'd probably be better off eating more protein. But it's it's just kind of interesting to me because the data on that, you know, it's very difficult to get accurate data on how much protein people are eating to begin with. And then you also look at, you can look at, um, you know, how much each household is buying and, but how much, you don't know how much of that is going to waste. Right. So yeah, so many different areas of research that you can look at that in, and you're not really going to get an accurate, accurate depiction on how much protein is America actually eating. Yeah. Um, no, those are great points, man. I guess we can talk about some of these studies first off, like you mentioned, it's hard to accurately measure, but also the cutoff for too much is probably the RDA value, right? In some of these studies and the RDA is like you mentioned is simply to prevent deficiencies. Um, so again, RDA recommended daily allowance is like the set standard for the minimum amount of any nutrient that you should consume to prevent being deficient in that nutrient. That does not mean that you can't have any benefits from consuming more of that particular nutrient. When it comes to protein and body composition, I'd say people who are completely sedentary, um, and again, I don't recommend that anybody's completely sedentary, but if you are, you can probably have some benefits from eating slightly above the RDA, probably 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kilo of body weight. These recommendations that I'm providing are given that the person is not overweight or obese because then their body weight's much higher, right? So for somebody who is overweight or obese, if you're trying to figure out perhaps how much protein you should consume, maybe you set your particular targets based off of your ideal healthy body weight. So if you are X number of pounds and you want to lose 40 or 50 pounds, set these recommendations based off of your goal weight and make sure that goal weight's realistic, right? Because some people want to lose a ridiculous amount of weight and it's not realistic. For people who are looking to improve body composition, building body mass, uh, the research pretty clearly shows that about 1.6 grams start to see some, some really good benefits with protein intake. That can go all the way up to 2.2 grams per kilo, which is one gram per per pound of body weight, right? Which is like the bodybuilding standard. <laughs> but in reality, there's not much difference between 1.6 or 2.2 grams. Some studies show a small benefit. And for some people that may be worth it. I wouldn't sit here and say like, hey, for sure, 2.2 grams is better than 1.6. There isn't strong evidence to suggest that, but there is some, some evidence to suggest that it might be slightly better. And for people like me who really want to like optimize body composition, build as much muscle as possible. Um, I lift weights recreationally because I love it as a sport. I want to get as strong as I can. Then yeah, I try to eat more protein. But if you don't enjoy eating a bunch of protein, if you can really work on getting to like 1.4 or 1.6 grams per kilo, that would be ideal. And then, it, you know, we really dive into the topics of like protein quality, protein distribution, et cetera. Like animal-based proteins are better than plant-based proteins, but there's also like some evidence to suggest that when your protein intake is that high, let's say you're eating 1.6 or 1.8 grams uh, per kilo, you're eating sufficient total protein to where it doesn't really make a big difference, right? Like if you're eating, if your protein is coming from mixed sources, both animals and plants, if you're getting that level of protein intake, you don't really have to worry about whether animal protein is slightly more bioavailable um, than plant proteins, right? What I do think is important is that you consume sufficient essential amino acids. 
But again, if you're consuming a variety of plant-based protein sources, you're likely getting those in, right? So you also don't have to be super tedious about that either. Um, if you guys like are picking up on a recurring theme, it's like, I don't like people being tedious about things. I like people following some general recommendations because it's like, you're going to get probably like 98% of the benefit, right? Go, go ahead, Nicole. Well, what I was going to say as, as you're talking, I'm thinking, because a lot of the times when I'm with clients, protein intake is important, but consistent protein intake yeah. for me is more important than the amount. So if I start yeah. off with a client and they are at like 1.2 to 1.6, I'm happy with that in any situation that they can do for the next six months. And yeah, then exactly. wherever we're going from there in terms of their goals, as if we need to build up or take it down or adjust, I just want them consistently eating protein because I find consistency, and this goes back to what you're saying about being able to adhere to it. It has to be something that you can actually do day to day. So it's great that you can hit high protein goals or protein in general for a week or two weeks, but can you do that from now on? Yeah, exactly. And, and 2.2 is pretty tough for a lot of people to hit yeah. if they don't, if they don't have a particular style of eating that is a high protein diet. Right. Yeah. So just aiming for that 1.4 maybe is a lot easier and they can adhere to that better without a doubt. Yeah. And then one other important thing about protein is like, you do, you do ideally want to space it out evenly throughout the day and at yes. least three meals. Right. There's also good evidence to show that like, okay, because when you eat protein, you stimulate a mechanism called muscle protein synthesis, right? Which is just the mechanism by which we grow muscle. Essentially that process takes about three to five hours more or less. So when you eat food, MPS muscle protein synthesis is increased and it returns to baseline after three to five hours, there are some factors that influence whether it's quicker or slightly slower. So theoretically, if you want to maximize MPS over 24 hours, you want to eat a good bolus of protein and a good bolus would be probably um, around like 0.3 to 0.4 grams per kilo per meal, right? So if you have four meals, that would be 1.6, um, but around that 0.3 to 0.4 grams per kilo. And you want to do that every three to five hours. So that makes you think like you should probably have five protein feedings per day, more or less. But there's also data to suggest that if you eat that much protein in three meals, evenly spaced it, the difference is like non-significant. Mm -hmm. And I was actually um, not talking, but we were commenting back and forth with Eric Helms, which I'm sure you guys know. And he actually pointed this out to me because I was uh, writing a chapter and, and talking about, you know, optimally, you probably want to have four or five meals. And he pointed me to some evidence that I wasn't aware of. And he's like, hey, the evidence actually shows that if you eat sufficient protein in three meals, probably doesn't make a difference. And he was like, just, just so you know, theoretically, I think it makes that sense. And he's like, I have five protein feedings and I prioritize protein before bed, but it's based off theory. Like we don't have hard evidence that that really matters all that much. Um, but yeah, that's all about protein. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because um, I was, I came from a bodybuilding background. I was a competitive bodybuilder for you have some thick arms, man. Okay. That's, it. That's about all I got at this point. I lost everything else. Um, but I was six, seven meals a day, like super, super yes. high protein when I was a competitive bodybuilder. And then now and I used to also as a coach be very like, no, Adam you have to do it this way. Right. Mm -hmm. And then as you learn more and as you yourself, I think as my, myself, I became kind of a regular person, right? I'm like, ah, I kind of value <laughs> my education more and my fun and I want to go on vacations and stuff and pick up other hobbies and I'm not really yeah. competing anymore. I'm like, you know what? Four meals, solid amount of protein, 
Yeah. I probably get 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. I honestly don't even check, but I, at this point would just guess, I know what a portion looks like. Right. And when you talk from a standpoint of, you know, what people are ready for and, and what recommendation that, that they're kind of re- ready to receive, I, you know, I think it's oftentimes pr- proteins are really hard one for people to grasp like, oh man, that's so much. But if they gradually work their way up and they turn that into a lifestyle, it almost becomes kind of second nature for them where they're just, they don't even think, and it's just, okay, protein on my plate. I can eat it all. No problem. Yeah. And you start changing your eating behaviors too, to choose foods that are similar to foods that you like that are a little bit higher in protein, right? Like if you like yogurt, just eat Greek yogurt. Um, If you like cheese, probably just eat like lower fat um, mozzarella cheese. That's high, high in protein, right? So like you start making these small substitutions, perhaps you start putting a little bit more meat on your plate than you normally do. And it's like small changes that do add up, right? If you increase each meal by 10 grams, which is nothing, yeah, a couple bites. an additional 30 or 40 grams in a yeah, day, yeah. right? So super simple and it adds up. And uh, talking about what you were saying about seven meals per day for bodybuilding, I've actually had this conversation with Lane. He used to be the same way. And that's actually perhaps, and again, this is getting super technical into the semantics, but it's probably suboptimal because you can argue that the amount of protein you have in each feeding perhaps isn't sufficient to maximally stimulate MPS, right? And then you'd probably benefit from having a slightly larger dose in, in less meals. But again, this it's like, super theoretical. It probably doesn't make, it probably doesn't make that much of a difference, you know, but, um, yeah, the, the whole bodybuilding eating seven meals a day is a, is a job. <laughs> it is work. Yeah, it it is. Work. And then, and then to expect, uh, some, someone who doesn't live in that like world to person. be able, yeah, to yeah. be able to do that. That's a very difficult task. And the issue is unqualified, unqualified coaches, right? Yeah. Because like when you know the science, you know, that like three or four meals versus seven is like not different at all. Um, I think the real big benefit, and and again, Eric Helms has talked about this in his, his podcast, is that like when you are a larger person and you have to eat X amount of calories, uh, like bodybuilders can sometimes eat upwards of 5,000 calories. Like that's really hard to do in three meals. So perhaps right. doing that over six or seven meals, it's, yeah. it's a little bit easier. And that goes back again to what we were talking about at the beginning is, is if you have regular meal times, you get hungry around those times, right? So if you're used to eating every two hours, you're going to get a little bit hungry every two hours, even though your body doesn't necessarily need the food, right? Because hunger and satiety cues really do um, regulate based on when and how much you eat. But yeah, dude, I'm, I'm happy you're not eating seven meals per day anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am no. too, because it's much easier to deal with him. Yeah, I think yeah. At the he- <laughs> I think at the height of my my the height of my off season, I was at consistently for two years. I did seven thousand calories a day. Oh my god, what and, were you weighing, uh, dude? I was 240 was the the most that I weighed in the off season. I had at that point realized that I had gained, it was too much in the off season for me. Um, there was a certain point where I was just eating calories to eat calories. Yeah. And, and I, I actually, I, it backfired on me because there was a point where I just stopped growing because I think I was just overloading my system, my, you know, insulin receptors. I'm sure my insulin sensitivity went down. I gained a lot of uh, uh, abdominal fat. Uh, and it just wasn't uh, productive at a certain point. And then eventually I cut down, did my last competition that was in 2016. And then I was like, ah, I'm kind of done. Maybe I'll compete again. I'll never say I won't yeah, ever do it again, ever. but yeah. you know, who knows? You know, now that you brought up that topic, um, if you're interested after this podcast, just shoot me a message on Instagram and I'll send it to you. There's a podcast by stronger by science talking about P ratios. Are you familiar with the concept of P ratios? 
It's no. like um, essentially based off of your body fat. If you're higher body fat, are you more willing to put on, or, or are you more receptive to putting on muscle mass or fat mass? Right. So like if somebody is 30% body fat versus 15% body fat and they gain one pound is more of that pound muscle when you're leaner versus overweight. And they go over all the research there because it's pretty interesting. The conclusion is that it probably doesn't matter all that much. But there's evidence that suggests it does. They just talk about some of the limitations of that research. I can definitely share that with you because it's super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to uh, listen to that. The other thing I'll say is being 240 is just not comfortable at all. And I see some yeah. of these like IFBB pros that are 280, 300 in the off season. And I'm like, yeah. I don't know how you guys live. And then, you know, sleep apnea, yeah. heart palpitations, all that stuff. Like it's not it's not a healthy, you look, I always say bodybuilding is a sport where you kind of look like what the epitome of health would be, but you're actually probably the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Daron, if you don't mind me asking, how tall are you? I'm 5'11". Okay. So yeah, you're relatively tall. So 240 is heavy, but perhaps not so much. The heaviest I've gotten to is 230, but I'm 6'4". But even at 230, I felt, I felt uncomfortable, man. Yeah. It's like, um, just, just having that much, much mass is uncomfortable. Just going up a flight of stairs. I was kind of breathing heavy and stuff and that I'm really active. I lift five times a week and I walk pretty intensely at least an hour a day, but just when you're carrying that much weight, it's just uncomfortable. Um, and I was by no means like very overweight or anything like that, but usually I walk around like two fifteen, and just the 15, 20 pound difference. You really do feel it. Yeah, absolutely. Which goes right. to show for people who are like unhealthy and overweight and obese, like, here's it's it can be overwhelming when you feel like you have to lose 100 pounds but the research shows that you get pretty awesome health improvements from just losing five or ten percent of your total body weight mm -hmm. so if you like just focus on the first 15 20 pounds it's going to take some time but you'll feel a lot better just losing a little bit of weight it's it's incredible yeah i think people just get overwhelmed by by how much perhaps they want to achieve yeah. You don't realize that even just improving a little bit will help you feel a lot better and improve your health significantly as well I think that also goes with just anything in life, right? It's if you're looking at the end goal, the big picture, yeah. it's it becomes overwhelming, right? Yeah, and that's what I look at that with school too. Now I'm like, if I'm going to yeah. get a PhD, I'm not looking at the PhD. I'm looking at the next class that I'm taking next semester, yeah. right? Because the, the only thing I can do is do what I have to do in front of me today. Uh, yeah. And I think oftentimes if people adopt that kind of a mindset, then they're more likely to be, you know, successful. I, I know it's easier said than done, but. Yeah, I think both type of goals are necessary. I think it is important to have an obje objective long-term goal, but an objective long-term goal without short-term goals doesn't really mean anything, right? I think it's important to have that objective goal, but then really put the majority of your emphasis on your next step on that short-term goal and have, because that, that, that long-term goal at least keeps you in the right direction, right? Because that's something I've even noticed with myself, like, when I didn't really even know what I want, wanted my career to be. And I don't necessarily even know hundred percent exactly what I see myself doing 10, 15 years from now, but I have a general big picture thing of like what I want to do. And then when I decide to, to, to undergo a particular endeavor, I'm like, does that align with that? If the answer is yes, that's enough for me. Right. But at least it keeps me, it gives me an objective standard to decide like whether that decision is correct or not. Right? Because for some people like with weight loss, it's like, okay, if you, if you're, if your weight is, is negatively impacting your health. Yes, you should probably pursue weight loss, but a lot of people want to lose weight and they don't need to lose weight at all. So it's like, what is your end objective goal? Is it to be lean for the sake of being lean or is your goal to improve your health? And if your goal is to be as healthy as possible, then you can ask yourself, hey, I have this short-term goal of losing 10 pounds. Is that, is that going to improve my health? Like, 
maybe it is depending on what your status is right um but that's really why i do like having that long-term objective goal and it's something i i try to work on with my clients as well it's tough uh, and then I guess we'll go into the next one, which we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, yeah. Some of the most important things to consider when setting up a exercise program. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we'll talk about general exercise for health and then we'll talk about lifting weights since that's what we enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> so for general health, just act, just move, move your body, right? I think some very rigorous exercise is extremely beneficial. And by rigorous, I mean like you're breathing hard, your heart rate is elevated you feel uncomfortable. But for somebody who's never exercised, that's unrealistic, right? I've had the experience, actually, when I first started personal training back in like 2015, I put myself on Craigslist as a personal trainer. And my first client was was this um, teenage boy. He was probably like 12 or 13. His mom hired me. Um, He wasn't in good shape. He was overweight and he never exercised. He just played video games all day. And I didn't really know how to approach that situation. And I just trained him really hard. And I feel really bad about it now because he hated it. He hated it. Right. And I would go to the, the football field with him and like do drills. And he was like breathing super hard and like throwing up. Not he actually never threw up, but on the verge of throwing up. And in my mind, um, I had done team sports and the whole uh, culture was like you push till you throw up pretty much. Right. Like I did some football in middle school. I did some wrestling that's what they preach. Like you just train as hard as you can. It doesn't matter. So I pushed this kid in that fashion. And unfortunately I pushed him away from exercise because after a couple of sessions, like his mom was like, Hey, this isn't working out. Like, like we're done. And retrospectively, I think I could have had a much better approach to it. Right. Um, so the reason why I mentioned doing something you enjoy is because then it's actually fun to do. Right. And even amongst people who exercise, there's things you enjoy and there's things you don't enjoy. Like, Drone, I could probably say you don't like to run. <laughs> I don't, do but like run? I have adopted some cardio, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it's not running. Personally, I hate running. Like I hate running, but I love, love lifting weights, right? So it's, you don't either like or dislike exercise. You typically like some sort of exercise. Mm-hmm. And even within running, like I love playing basketball, but I hate running for the sake of it, right? And I can play basketball for three hours and time flies and I enjoy it and I get a rush from it. So I would say choose something you enjoy. It can literally be as simple as going for a walk with your partner or your kids. Like just do a little bit of something. And if you don't do anything, start with very little and then slowly try to improve. I think with exercise across all modalities of exercise is try to improve, right? At some point, improvement becomes really difficult, but that only happens once you're like pretty advanced. So regular exercise, do something you enjoy. Do it regularly. I think at least like 30 minutes a day of just moving your body around. And that doesn't have to be rigorous exercise. Like some days when I don't lift weights, I, like I mentioned, I go on a walk for an hour total for the day, which I break up into like 20 minute walks. Um, and then if we want to get a little bit more specific, I think everybody can benefit from some resistance training and some form of cardio. I think the lifting crowd says cardio doesn't matter and it doesn't matter much for building muscle, but it does matter for cardiovascular health, right? There's a, a, linear, a pretty linear relationship between VO2 max, which is essentially a measurement of our cardiovascular health and um, longevity and risk of cardiovascular disease, right? So if you can even slightly improve your cardiovascular health, then you can potentially improve your lifespan and not just your lifespan, but your quality of life. Some cardio is important. I personally may be biased here, but I think people should focus the majority of their efforts towards resistance training because I do think building muscle is incredibly important for health, right? And in terms of like a functionality standpoint, 
Um, having more muscle means you're more functional when you're older, right? A, a big issue older people have is that they're very frail. They don't have muscle. They can't move around because they don't have much strength to support their own body, which is crazy to think, right? Like imagine being weak to the point where you have a hard time standing up, like, and you can prevent that by doing some resistance training. Um, resistance training is incredibly important for bone health. Talking about bone health again, right? Like the, the statistics of the percentage of people that die within a year of breaking a hip from falling is staggering. I don't remember the exact number right now, but I think it's like 50% of, of older adults who break a hip from a fall die within one year. And now it's not directly caused by the fall. It's the fact that like, if you're, if you're so frail that if you just kind of tip over and break your hip, you're already not in good health, right? A lot of those people pass away within a year, sadly. But again, you could prevent that by doing some resistance training, improving bone density. Um, and when it comes to resistance training, if we get a little bit more specific there, you want to train all the major muscle groups. I think you don't have to get super complex into exercise selection. If you do some sort of sitting and standing, aka a squat, if you do some sort of bending over, aka some sort of deadlift for the lower body, you're probably good for the majority of the people, right? Like those two are, are, are big movement patterns. Then for the upper body, you want to do something where you're pushing and you want to do something where you're pulling in different planes. And that can be a whole host of exercises. Um, but you want to have those basic things in your program. And then if you want to get a little bit more specific, you want to train each of those movements or movement patterns at least twice a week, right? I think most people who aren't looking to be bodybuilders or powerlifters could benefit from like three whole body sessions that last probably 45 minutes to an hour. I think it's hard to say that you can get an effective workout in less than that. That's a whole body workout, right? Because you need to warm up properly. You need to do a couple of sets of these exercises. But you know, if you can put away three hours of your week to doing that, it will have an incredible return on your health. Um, and those are some of the, the, the real big picture things, right? Do something you enjoy, do it regularly, do a little bit of it every day. If we get a little more specific, do a little cardio, do a little resistance training. I'm not the best to ask in terms of like how to optimize a, a cardiovascular training program because I have no clue there in terms of like uh, programming intensity and duration and all that because um, I focus on the lifting side of things. But then on the lifting side of things, train each muscle at least twice a week. I think three whole body sessions is perfect. And make sure you do an exercise for each of those movement patterns I described. And um, I think that's probably covers more than 90% of it really. You know, it's interesting, the cardio thing. So Nicole keeps telling me we need to do a, we, we need to do an episode on, uh, you know, cardio and, and, you know, different types of cardio and stuff. And I'm like, all right, I'm like, find me an expert because <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not doing that episode. I'm not, I don't read that research. Yeah. I, I don't really know in terms of optimizing. I know for general health and wellness, cardio is great. Um, I will say cardio is actually something that I got into much later. Uh, and we had, uh, we had my buddy Haroon on here, who was a, a, um, who's a neuropsychologist and he did his PhD on the effects of cardiovascular activity and the brain, the link between cardiovascular health and brain function yeah. and the risk of like dementia and, and Alzheimer's and all these things is huge. Yeah. And I look at it from a standpoint of how do I optimize the way my brain works, you know, to hopefully be able to use it more. Right. Yeah. Uh, just cause that's the phase that I'm at, uh, at in my life right now. But I will say the other thing that you brought up is the bone density thing is super important when it comes to resistance training. And the one thing that I tell people is you basically have like a, a limited time frame within your life where 
that is where you want to take advantage, like the middle of your life, you want to really take advantage of increasing your bone density and doing resistance training through that time where you're able to increase bone density because you get to a certain point where you're just trying to slow down the turnover. So maximizing peak bone mass is what you're referring to, right? And that is incredibly important. And unfortunately, after like age 40, 50, it does start to go downhill. But I will say, I haven't seen any data on this, but I would suspect that somebody who has never resistance trained and is perhaps in their 50s or 60s can see some benefits in bone density. Super like just theoretical. I don't know if that's true or not, but it would make sense because it's a novel stimulus, right? Like I think a novel stimulus is always going to elicit some sort of response. For somebody who's, who's been lifting their whole life, yeah, after like 50, it's probably going to go downhill. And probably the, the, the data on the general public show, shows that relationship that after 50, there's no uh, growth. Probably because like people are set in their ways. And if you've never lifted by the time you're 50 or 55, it's unlikely that you're going to start then, right? I'm only saying this anecdotally because when I, did per- when I was personal training before my master's, and this isn't just about bone density, but I was working with an older lady. And I, I tell everybody this story because it still fascinates me. I was working with an older lady. Um, first day I start working with her, she tells me she has really bad arthritis in her knees. She can barely uh, sit to 90 degrees without like any pain, right? So she, she to sit would plop down. You know how people like bend their knees slightly and they kind of just drop. And so what I did with her was like, okay, we are going to come down to where you feel comfortable with minimal discomfort and we're going to stop, but you need to control it. Okay. We're not going to just plop down because we want to, we want to stress the muscle essentially. And that, that literally started with maybe like 10 degree bend in knees that became 15, 20, et cetera. I, I think you guys know probably where this story is going. It got to the point where she could do a full range of motion, squat, body weight, no pain. Right. And then a year later, she was doing goblet squats, full range of motion with 40 pounds, no pain. <laughs> and all I did was just progress her to the point where she found, felt minimal discomfort. And I was like, all right, that's where we're stopping. But we're, whatever depth you go to, control it. And slowly, it just felt more and more comfortable. And we did a similar thing with her shoulders. And she, she literally would tell me, like, this is crazy. I can't believe this is happening because my doctors just tell me I need these um, injections. And the injections obviously do help, but it's not a solution, right? It's a temporary fix. And she was like, I can't believe it. Just like doing this silly thing, because at the end of the day, it is super silly. Like, Hey, just take some time to stand and sit with control. And like, that will be super helpful. Right. Um, so that's why I do think that if you do get a, no- a novel stimulus later in life, you can still improve, but I'm, I'm totally with you. Like you should take advantage of your younger years and try to maximize that as much as possible. I, I think that kind of goes along the lines of what you just said with that uh, with that client of yours is that I, th- I don't think people understand how much movement is medicine and how much you can feel better by, you know, not going. I, I don't know if I want to say like not going the conventional route to me, exercise is the conventional route. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, um, you know, you, you don't they just don't look at it that way. And I do think that we need more people. Uh, delivering that message. And I, listen, I do think that fitness is growing and expanding. I used it to be, is. when I started, it was just bodybuilders in the gym and, you know, women wouldn't touch dumbbells and they were like, Oh, I'm not going downstairs in the gym by the dumbbells. That's where all the guys work out and yeah. they feel uncomfortable. Um, but now I think with the development of, you know, we've got all these different pop-ups, we've got orange theory, we've got CrossFit, we've got uh, it's Barry's Boot Camp. We've got all these different things that pop up and fitness thankfully has now become it's just something that people do and a lot more people mainstream. do. Yeah. yeah, more mainstream. I guess the, the last thing that I want to ask you is your top five false nutrition claims 
that get under your skin. What does that look like for you? For sure. I'll address those in just a second, but I want to add something to what you previously said in terms of cardio and brain health, completely anecdotal here. But when I, um, so I highly value those walks that I take every day because sometimes I really don't feel like doing, excuse language. I don't feel like doing shit, right? Like (laughs) I sit down on my Mm -hmm. desk and I have work to do and it's just like brain fog. Like I can't do anything. And I'll put on my headphones and go for, I'm not jogging, but like an intense walk, like I'm breaking a sweat, breathing a little bit heavy. And when I come back, I feel ready to go. Mm-hmm. And usually with all of my videos that I film for Instagram, like I want to be upbeat and like deliver a message, like not being super monotone and boring. And I usually take a walk before those. And when I come back, I feel really good and like energetic. So there's definitely something there. I mean, there's definitely like release of endorphins and, and dopamine and stuff like that. Right. And I'm sure that has some, some long-term benefits for brain function. I actually haven't looked much of m- looked much at the literature between cardio and brain health, but um, it's fascinating that you brought that up because I've experienced it anecdotally for sure. I may have to send you that episode from uh, <laughs> yeah, the neuropsychologist. Uh, yeah. So he, he talked a lot about, um, brain derived neurotrophic factor and how you're actually increasing neurogenesis uh, mm. and creating new nerve pathways through doing cardiovascular activities, which was really cool. Yeah. That's awesome for sure. All right. Five myths, man. Do we want to keep it specific to a topic? There's so nah, many. Dude. All right. Let's it's up to it. you free, free range. Okay. Yeah. So, so, uh, first one, since we were talking about protein, right? Just like the whole notion that in some way protein is bad or causes disease. Um, particularly with, with kidney health, right? I think that's one that people are really afraid of. And it's because when you can, well, proteins are made out of amino acids. Amino acids contain nitrogen. We excrete nitrogen through a compound called urea, right? So if we eat more protein, we produce more urea and that theoretically increases the stress on the kidneys. But it's true that protein does increase urea excretion, but it is not true that it damages the kidneys. And there's plenty of evidence directly looking at different protein doses and well-established mark kidney health. And none of them are adversely affected by higher protein intake. We do see a slightly higher rate, uh, a glomerular, glomerular filtration rate, which simply means that the kidneys are filtering more blood. That is likely due to perhaps a slightly more urea that needs to be excreted, right? But in terms of like the health of the kidney itself, it's not adversely affected. And anecdotally, you can look at bodybuilders who eat really high protein diet their entire life, don't have a higher rate of kidney dysfunction, right? Now, with individuals that do have some kidney dysfunction or perhaps only have one kidney, a super high protein diet may not be uh, ideal because it does increase the stress on the kidneys. Like the kidney does have to theoretically work a little bit harder. And And lower protein diets do increase uh, functionality and health in individuals with lower, with, with um, poor kidney function. So that would be like a big one, right? Because I do think a lot of people avoid protein because they're like, oh, it's bad for my kidneys, but it, it really isn't. So that would be number one. Number two is associated with artificial sweeteners, right? And there's so many myths with artificial sweeteners, but I think one of the big ones is like people are like, oh, artificial sweeteners cause diabetes, cause insulin resistance. And that is first off, not true. And like, theoretically it's impossible, right? Because Insulin resistance, although we don't know the particular cause, we do know that overconsuming food in general for a long period of time induces insulin resistance, independent of the particular macronutrients, right? Like whether you eat a high fat diet or a high carbohydrate diet, if you overeat in general, it does seem to be very calorically load dependent, where if you gain excess body fat, 
you become more insulin resistant. And with over time, you become diabetic, right? If you follow that pattern. Now people are like, oh, um, artificial sweeteners do the same thing. Artificial sweeteners don't technically contain zero calories, but they contain minimal amount of calories, right? And there's actually trials showing that artificial sweeteners are helpful for weight loss because it might help with dietary adherence, might help curb your cravings for sweet foods, and in general, decrease overall caloric load, right? So when it comes to artificial sweeteners, typically molecules like sucralose or whatever artificial sweetener we're talking about, they are hundreds, if not thousands of times sweeter than table sugar, right? They still actually contain calories, but if a soda contains, I actually don't know how many grams of sugar, 20, 30 grams of sugar, the artificially sweetened version of that soda will con contain hundreds, if not thousands of times less of that artificial sweetener compared to the table sugar. So the overall glycemic load is non-significant, right? Like you actually don't increase insulin secretion if you consume artificial sweeteners in normal doses because the overall load consumed is so minimal, right? It's like if you said, if you consume one-tenth of a gram of table sugar, are you going to release a lot of insulin? No, because it's load dependent, right? The pancreas uh, senses how much carbohydrate, how much glucose you consumed in a meal, and it will secrete an appropriate amount of insulin to shuttle that glucose into different tissues. If you consume very little, you don't release much insulin. So that's, that's one big um, myth. So we're at two so far. I, I have so many in my mind, but that are like kind of silly right? Like carbs are bad for you. Uh, fats are bad for you. Whatever, whatever is bad yeah. for you is not bad for you. It's just context specific. And I guess we already talked a lot about this earlier, but it all depends on the context, right? Carbs are not bad for you. Fats are not bad for you. If you eat zero fats, you die because fats are essential. Um, if you eat zero carbs, you don't die, but you should eat some carbs. Uh, so <laughs> everything is context specific, right? If you ever hear anybody say X is bad, and make a blanket statement like that, and they're referring to a particular nutrient or a particular food, uh, they're just incorrect, right? Because in different contexts, things may be helpful, and in other contexts, it may be harmful. So the context is incredibly important, and nothing, nothing in nutrition is good or bad, like, and, and that's it, right? Um, I guess we could talk about some exercise-related myths too, like uh, resistance training makes you bulky for women. I don't think that's necessarily that, that big anymore. It used to be, but the... The thing I tell everybody is like, men obviously put on muscle easier than women, right? Yes. I've been spending my whole life trying to get too bulky and I'm not there. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm sure you guys have heard that a million times, right? But like, no resistance training is not going to get you too bulky. And that's actually, I know it's not as prevalent, but still something I have to work on with some of my female clients. Absolutely. Um, go ahead. Uh, I yeah. went to try out, I went to try out a different gym with a buddy of mine. Um, he's actually a client of mine as well. And I was like, I'm going to come in and work out with you today. We're going to, we're going to do follow, still follow your program. Um, but I'm going to come in, you know, help you out, give you some pointers, give you some tips. And I'm looking around the gym and the whole culture with women in particular. And this is the part where I'm like, man, I grew up in the wrong generation <laughs> because my generation, all of the women wanted to just be skinny and be on the treadmill. And the current generation, all of the women are in the gym doing hip thrusts and I want to squat and I want to build a butt. And I'm, that's the part where I'm like, I grew up in the wrong generation. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but it's a completely different culture shift now. Yeah. yeah, dude. And women seem to be in general stronger than men relative to their body weight. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, you know, you know, what's interesting too, is that women are, I, I guess, childbearing obviously, but women are also yeah. able to handle more uh, pain. Pain, pain from their workouts. Pain. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I guess that would make sense if you can train a little bit more intensely too. Maybe you make a little bit uh, faster progress, right? Who knows? Because I know like when my legs start to burn squatting, I'm done with the set, dude. <laughs> See, and, and that's you where know? I'm like chasing, like as a female, I, I think it's funny that, well, as a female trainer, women definitely still have the bulky thing. Let me just say that. Okay. That is something I do still have to really talk down on a daily basis, but it's less than because we have more information now to inform them in a way that is educational versus just saying, no, it won't happen. Now we have facts to back it up and I can actually speak more clearly from a trainer standpoint. The second piece to that is I think women like the feeling of not just the burn because it feels good, but the challenge is different mentally. You know, there's, it's, it's, I don't know how to say it in an eloquent way, but it just feels really good. You you walk away feeling yes. like you crush something really strong and it, you, it's a successful session. And I'm sure it feels really empowering too. Yeah. So empowering. That's, that's the word. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I was at four myths, right? Yeah, that, was four. <laughs> that was four. Um, <laughs> all right. With, uh, okay. I see this one with resistance training too. And I think, I guess I'm so far removed from some of these myths. I don't know if they're prevalent or not. But, and I, I'm bringing up this one because one of my newer clients was mentioning this when I was actually designing her program. She, uh, you know, the whole idea that higher rep, that lower reps, heavy weight makes you bulkier, right? Yeah. If, since we're talking about the bulky stuff, like lower yeah. reps or whatever, or higher reps are better to, for, to be like more cut or whatnot. And her whole goal for her body composition, she does have a really well-built upper body, like really rounded shoulders, really big arms. And she was like, I actually don't want to grow these body parts. So I do lightweight with really high reps. And I was like, what do you consider high reps? And she's probably like 12 to 15 or something like that. And I was like, well, did you know that if you just train those body parts with really heavy weights and potentially much lower reps, the opposite of what you think will happen, right? Because hypertrophy is volume dependent. And I know rep ranges don't matter all that much. You do have higher training volume when you do higher repetitions on a particular exercise. And although there's really not much difference between like six to 15 repetitions, but if you train those heavier than that and you're doing triples or sets of four, like a power lifter, you're perhaps not going to grow that much muscle in those areas relative to doing higher repetitions, right? So we actually changed that up for her. And she was like, wow, I never knew this. And I showed her some of the evidence and I was like, yeah, there's a reason why the strongest dudes in the world are not the biggest dudes. And the biggest dudes in the world, they're not the strongest dudes. Right. Um, So I think that is a common misconception of like, if I lift really heavy, I'm going to get real big. And if I lift uh, lighter with higher reps, then I won't. And like the lighter weight with higher reps will get you pretty damn big if you train near failure. (laughs) The question is whether or not they're training near failure, obviously. Yeah, exactly. The intensity I'm, I'm speaking here, given that the person's training with high intensity, right. Going, going near failure within an appropriate rep range. Like, yeah, if you're doing high reps, like 60, 70 reps, We'll just call that cardio. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Those are all great. Those are all awesome. Yeah, they're fantastic. And all stuff that I feel like is definitely big. I mean, I'm in a gym daily too. So that I hear it all day long. So those are really great. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. You know what, Joey? Um, It's been a great episode. Uh, We've been following you for quite some time. We love your content. Keep, Keep up the good work and keep fighting the good fight. And uh, appreciate you guys, man. Hopefully we get to do this again sometime. I would love to, man. I really, I really enjoyed this as well. Um, you know, I it's, it's go ahead, Nicole. I'll say what I, I was just going to ask what your Instagram handle was so that we can have people follow. Oh you. yeah. It's a Dr. Joey Munoz. That's D R dot J O E Y M U N O Z. 
Um, and if you guys want to email me perhaps for coaching services or anything like that, or are interested in having a conversation with me, you can email me at joseph at biolane.com. That's B-I-O-L-A-Y-N-E.com. And I was just going to say, it's really, it's really nice to, to hear positive feedback from, from people like you guys who are obviously professionals in the field because it reinforces that I'm doing the right thing, right? Um, I always think of it like I don't experience my content the same way everybody else does, right? The same way you guys probably don't experience your podcast the way other people like yeah. listeners do. So it's always nice to get that feedback. And um, actually, I just posted this on my story yesterday. Some dude who is in chiropractic school sends me a screenshot of of his professor's lecture. Oh, um, your slide, right? Yeah, and it's my post. That. And I was like, yeah. what the hell? Like, how did this make it into a university like lecture? This is just <laughs> the post that I talked about the relationship between rep ranges and, and outcomes mm-hmm. on Instagram. And he was like, check this out. My professor like used your post to discuss this topic. I'm like, it shows like how much reach social media has too, right? Because yeah. I just think I'm like at my house, like chilling in my room, uh, <laughs> making posts, talking about education and stuff. And um, it, do- it does have a really big reach. So it, it is really cool to-, to see that. Yeah. All right. Well, good stuff, Joey. I appreciate you coming on. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 